16 of chapter 12, it says, Now behold the king that you have chosen. This morning we're going to be looking at Saul. Saul was not only going to give the Israel, God was not only going to give Israelite a king, but the kind of king that they were asking for. So they're invited to look at this marvelous specimen of a man. Saul was the man's man. Behold the king you have chosen. They're invited to look at him. Now one might say, didn't God choose Saul to be king over Israel? Well, yes he did, which is made abundantly clear in chapters 9 and 10. But the king that God chose was in fact the kind of king that the people wanted. God gave in to their desires. God met what they were demanding. We are first introduced to Saul in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, which reads, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There is not a man among the people more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. These two short verses in 1 Samuel chapter 9 are incredibly important. And that's why I'm going to be focusing just on these two verses this morning. They form the basis, really, of Israel's concept of a king. They are foundational to the understanding of the kingdom. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, there comes an application, finally, of everything that has taken place from chapter 9, verse 1, up until that point. In chapter 16, David is going to be uh, chosen to be the next king that is going to replace Saul. Samuel is sent out to uh, establish the king that God has chosen. And when uh, Samuel goes through that process and comes to the house of David, uh, he looks at the brothers of David and assumes, because of the way that one looks, that he is going to be the next king of Israel. And God says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. What was important to Saul and what is important to natural man has to do with outward characteristics, physical abilities, and uh, stature. What is important to God is the inner heart and the qualities of integrity, etc., we find that the true and ultimate king of Israel, of course, is Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. And just as we are invited to look at Saul, we're invited to look at Jesus. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that borrowed donkey, uh, we read these words. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Look at him. Consider him. Think about him. Gaze upon him. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So there is a tremendous contrast that exists between 
that which the people want and that which God uh, desires. Jesus, we're going to find out, was rejected precisely because he did not look like the people thought the king, the Messiah, should look. They rejected Jesus, according to the scriptures, primarily because of his appearance. In Isaiah chapter 53, it begins with lament. Isaiah 53, 1 states, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah laments the fact that so many rejected Jesus as the Messiah King. So what, contrib what contributed to that rejection? Why did the people not believe the message concerning Jesus, the Messiah King? Answer, because Jesus did not look like the king that they anticipated him to be. In Isaiah chapter 53, listen closely to verse 2. For he grew up before him like a plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. No majesty that we should look at him. Nothing to draw our attention to Jesus. No beauty that we should desire him. Nothing that would outwardly make him attractive to us. In fact, quite the opposite, as we will see this morning. So this morning, we're going to be drawing a contrast between the King Saul and the King Jesus. And what we want to see this morning is that Jesus did not look anything like Saul. I believe that that's very important because Christendom has a very distorted view of Jesus. The mind's eye of Jesus is not like what the scripture reveals concerning the person of Jesus. Christendom has adopted a very distorted view of how Jesus looked and also what Jesus did. That distorted view of Jesus is carried over into then a distorted view of leadership, a distorted view of the gospel. To misunderstand who Jesus is, is to misunderstand really the basic truths of God's kingdom. So this morning, I'm going to illustrate before you this distorted view of Jesus by utilizing a number of slides that have images of Jesus. And I want to demonstrate to you this morning how erroneous those slides are, how misrepresentative of the truth of God's word. And it's extremely important for us this morning because there is this natural tendency, even for the children of God, just like the nation of Israel, to be focused on outward things rather than the heart. So we begin by looking at the first characteristic of Saul. The first characteristic that is established is that Saul was rich, having come from a wealthy family. Saul was rich, having come from a wealthy family. 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, and then simply this, a man of wealth. Other than the fact that Kish was wealthy, he has no other claim to fame. There are no other characteristics uh, that speak of the power or 
the uh, heritage that uh, Kish has, what is delineated for us, what is coming to the forefront, what is most important is, well, he was a man of wealth. He was a man of wealth. That's all we know. But in the text, that's all we need to know. For that was a tremendous priority. That's what they wanted in that leader. That's what they were going to be looking up to. They wanted a person of great wealth. Of course, the hope is that if you have a leader that has great wealth, they're going to make you prosperous. If they know how to make money, then they can make money for you. And so the incredibly important quality was that he would be wealthy. That would be the great priority. To this very day, people look up to and tend to make leaders of those of great personal wealth. It's an important measure of success. And still more, still more importantly, an important area of success. That's where we want them to shine. That's where we, we want them to excel again so that we can be prosperous and we can be wealthy. So what about Jesus? What about Jesus? As we think about Saul coming from a family of wealth. Well, Jesus did not come from a wealthy family. And he himself did not become rich. This proved to be an obstacle for believing in Jesus, according to Isaiah 53. Listen again. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him like a tender shoot. And now these words, and like a root out of dry ground. Out of root out of dry ground. That is speaking of his impoverished upbringing. That's speaking of the way in which his family was not flourishing. They were not rich. They were not wealthy. In fact, they were poor. They would have been in the lower class, if you will. They wouldn't have even been middle class. They would have been poor. Jesus was born in a stable, placed in a manger. We know that his parents were poor because of the offering that they offered when they brought Jesus to the temple. In Luke chapter 2, verse 22, we have uh, the parents obeying the purification laws that were necessary after a child was born. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, it says this, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of God, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So they came and they presented their birds to the Lord. But that teaches us that they were poor. For listen to what the law says in Leviticus chapter 12, starting at verse 7. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she'll be, be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. A lamb was preferable. It was desirable that if you are going to offer this offering of purification, offer a lamb. But if you're too poor, if, if you can't afford a lamb, well, then offer either two turtle doves or two pigeons. They offer the birds 
because they can't afford to offer a lamb. They are too poor. Jesus did not even acquire wealth in his lifetime. Jesus had no great estate in which to live. He said to his disciples, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. For the three years of his earthly ministry, in which he's traveling around and ministering, he had no home. He said, even the birds of the air have nests. Foxes have holes. I don't have any place to lay my head. Jesus ate the Last Supper with his disciples in a borrowed room. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. Matthew 21, 2 through 5 reads, saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs him. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold your king coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. So the fulfillment of prophecy was that Jesus would ride a borrowed donkey to show his humility, to show his humbleness. If you remember last week, we talked about the king that Israel was going to receive. And if you remember, there was a word that was repeated six times in that passage to describe the king. Do you remember what that word was? Take. Take. He shall take from you. Jesus is a king who gives. Jesus is a king who grants to others, not a king that takes. In fact, a king who will give his life a king that though he is rich in heaven, became poor in coming to earth to die for his people. So Saul is rich and Jesus is poor. But the real emphasis is in the next verse. The second quality that Saul possessed was that he was exceedingly good looking. If you look at verse 2 of 1 Samuel 9. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Oh, that's quite a statement. No one in Israel more handsome than Saul. Again, good looks is what distinguishes in the minds of many a characteristic that they want in their leaders, what is important to be a king. Appearance can be extremely important. Saul could have been voted Mr. Israel in a contest, for there was no one as handsome as he. Good looks are important even in politics. It is widely believed that a major contributing factor to John F. Kennedy's winning uh, the presidency over Richard Nixon was how much better he looked on television compared to Richard Nixon. And uh, they show clips, and because of the way he looked, People voted for him in the minds of many. I want you to think a minute concerning the mental picture that you have of Jesus. As you think of Jesus, how do you picture him? If I may have the first slide, please, up there. 
This is the head of Christ, also called the Solomon Head. It's a 1940 portrait painting of Jesus of Nazareth by American artist Warmer Solomon. With the possible exception of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, no picture of Jesus is etched so deeply into our imaginations than the head of Christ. Perhaps this is because Solomon's image of Christ has been reproduced in so many different media. It has been used to illustrate the pages of the Bible, Sunday school literature, calendars, posters, church bulletins, lamps, buttons, and even bumper stickers. The head of Christ has been reproduced over 500 million times. That's a half a billion times that this image has been seen, reproduced, distributed around the world. How many have never seen this before? Would you raise your hand? You never saw this picture before. One person never saw this picture before. So important is this painting that the Lilly Endowment funded a major study of the impact of Solomon's art upon religion in America. They tried to determine how much this, this uh, picture of Jesus affects religion in America. Recently, David Morgan, an art historian who teaches at Valparaiso University, published a book on the impact this painting has had upon an entire generation of Christians around the world. During the course of his study, Morgan interviewed hundreds of people about their feeling concerning Solomon's head of Christ. As one woman in the picture, uh, as one woman in the uh, study uh, responded, and I quote, the picture appeals to her simply because it shows just what Jesus looked like. That's why she loves this picture. It shows us just what Jesus looked like. So what does he look like in that picture? I'd say he's handsome, wouldn't you? Look at that long, wavy hair. Strong chin. Beautiful nose. See how nice and straight that nose is? Gorgeous blue eyes. You can't see it there, but if you see the picture close up, beautiful, beautiful blue eyes. And look at that skin tone. No blemishes, no pimples. Nice skin. Great skin. Is that what Jesus really looked like? Let me, again, point you to Isaiah 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we desire him. Nothing for us to take note of and say, wow, there's a good-looking person. What is more striking to me and even more important is that we really have a distorted view of what Jesus looked like when he died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, listen to this very carefully. He was so disfigured that he no longer even looked like a human being. Let me say that again. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was so disfigured that he didn't even look like a human being anymore. Of Saul, it is said that there was no one in Israel as handsome as he. 
Of Jesus, it is said, that there was no one who was as disfigured as he. Listen again to Isaiah 52. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. He looked like a piece of meat as he hung upon the cross. And now you might wonder, how could that be? Well, if you read the account, Jesus was scourged in John chapter 19, verse 1. Scourging was worse than a whipping. It was done with an instrument that was intended to rip open the flesh, often with multiple straps and little pieces of metal that were embedded in those straps. It was intended to rip the flesh right off of an individual, much worse than a bullwhip. And we've all seen the pictures of slaves, etc., that were beaten with bullwhips, but scourging was far worse. Jesus was repeatedly struck in the face, according to Matthew chapter 26, verse 67. Jesus was repeatedly beaten with rods upon his head. Matthew 27, verse 30, they spit on him, took the staff, and struck him on the head again and again and again. Just imagine somebody that is slapped around in their face with a rod or beaten on the head. Just think of the blood that flows. Think of the swelling that starts to take place. And then listen to this. The hair of Jesus' beard was ripped out. The hair of Jesus' beard was ripped out. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I offered my cheek to those who beat me, in my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. Jesus had taught us that we were to turn the other cheek. And so the scripture says that when he was slapped, he turned the other cheek to slap that one too. And it so infuriated those that were scourging him, those that were beating him, that he had the audacity to turn the other cheek so that they would slap that one too that they ripped the very beard out of his face. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I have a beard. I know the pain that it takes when a little baby grabs hold of that beard and pulls on it. I don't know if you've ever been in a fight where somebody's pulled your hair. It's not the most comfortable thing in the world. I can't imagine a beard pulled out. Clumps of hair and the flesh that that goes with it. How would a person look after all of that? I can tell you how they'll look. His appearance was so disfigured that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. People were appalled at him, repulsed by him, as a result of his disfigurement, people could not bear to look at him, Isaiah 53, verse 3, like one from whom we hide our faces. We couldn't even bear to look at that thing that was hanging upon the cross. He was so disfigured that the conclusion was, 
Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. When they saw Jesus' disfigurement, they said, this must be God's punishment. This must be that he is evil, he is wicked. No one has ever looked like that before. If you would give me the next slide, please. Number two. Thank you. This is what is normally depicted of Jesus hanging on the cross. Quite the specimen, is he not? No blood, beard intact. Not only does he look human, he looks strong, he looks healthy, looks like it was a piece of cake. Give me the next slide. Uh, I don't know if you can see that real well. This slide is taken from the movie, The Passion of Christ. The Passion of Christ was a movie that was produced by Mel Gibson, made a pretty big splash a number of years ago. The uh, Passion of Christ got an R rating in the theaters because of its violence. And let me give you a typical review. This is written by the Baltimore Sun. One of the things that got people upset about the Passion of Christ was their idea that it should be a different kind of story. A more acceptable story, said Mil, Mil Menu, who since 1995 had been reviewing films for parents on the internet, goes on to say, many Christian moviegoers, often with children in tow, anticipated a religious experience, while others simply hoped to learn more about Jesus' role in history. Either way, they endured a graphic portrayal of the seemingly endless beatings that filled Jesus' harrowing last hours on earth. Though some were moved, Minow called director Mel Gibson's depictions of torture fetishistic and pornographic. He said it was evil that Jesus would be portrayed in this way. Now look at that. That's probably the most graphic picture you will ever see of a depiction of the crucifixion. There's some blood on it, yes. But the beard is still intact. He still looks very human. He still looks quite strong. Well, you say, well, that's the world. That's, that's the secular view. That's, that's the way people think. What about our Sunday school material? What about the images that are presented every Sunday around the world? Would you give me the next slide? This is uh, taken uh, as part of the Sunday school material. Note, Jesus' beard intact. Notice, very little blood. There's droplets around where the wrists were. 
But notice, certainly doesn't look disfigured, does he? Doesn't look disformed. And I tell you that that forms our understanding of what Jesus went through on the cross. That distortion. It is so distorted that many times I've heard Christians downplay the physical suffering of Jesus and say, well, it's about his spiritual suffering and being separated from the Father. Yes, that's true. But the scripture does not minimize his physical suffering. In fact, it emphasizes his physical suffering. The fact that he's obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Talks about despising and shame. Let me tell you another thing that you will never see depicted in what is wrong in that picture is he's naked. He's naked as he hangs upon that cross. We don't want to see that. <laughs> we don't want to think about that. We'd turn our heads away from that. That's not what we think when we think of Jesus. That's not what we think that God would do in relationship to his son. Let me give you another misconception about Jesus and what this text has to say. The third quality concerning Saul was his commanding physical presence. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And now this. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than the people. From his shoulders upward, head and shoulders taller than any of the people. Any. There was no one in Israel that even came up to Saul's shoulder. He's the man's man. Wow! You want a king? Look at him! He's wealthy. He's the handsomest dude. And look at that stature. Taller from his shoulders up. Size was an incredible advantage in warfare in the Old Testament. People feared those of great size. If you remember the story of the children of Israel, when they are about to enter the land of Canaan, you remember what it says? Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are taller than we are. The cities are great and fortified. And besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. They're huge. You want us to go out and fight those people that are bigger than we are? Nothing illustrates that truth greater than we get to the chapter, and you all know the story well, of David and Goliath. Goliath was huge. 1 Samuel 17, 4, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. So let me read that for you in the NIV. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was nine feet tall. 
probably the only person that Saul ever encountered that dwarfed him. The only person that would ever make Saul look short. Here was Goliath. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Who can fight that giant? Who can take him on? Then all of a sudden, their king starts to look small in their eyes. This king now is afraid to take them into battle. And of course, it's not Saul who fights Goliath. It's David. And I'll elaborate more when we get to that chapter, but remember, Saul can't even, uh, David can't even put on Saul's armor because it drowns him. It's just too big for David. David can't be compared to Saul. Saul is head and shoulders above anybody in Israel. It's not about size. It's not about strength. The characteristics we want in a king. Franklin Della Roosevelt was the 32nd president of the United States. He was the first president in the history of our country to have a significant physical disability. He suffered the effects of polio, which he contracted at the age of 39. He was in a wheelchair most of the time. In January of 1922, FDR felt it was absolutely necessary in order for his political career to be advanced that he'd be able to get out of that wheelchair. And so he worked extremely hard physically to build up his arms and he had braces fit for his legs that he could lock into place. They were metal rods. And so he could lock them so that his legs would be absolutely straight and he could lift himself up or someone could help him up out of that wheelchair and then he could stand because of these braces that he had on his legs. Roosevelt was able to convince many people that he was getting better, which he believed was essential if he was to run for the public office again. His public appearances were choreographed to avoid the press covering his arrival and departure, which had shown him coming into or out of a vehicle or train. In private, he used the wheelchair, but was careful not to be seen using it in public, although sometimes he appeared on crutches. He usually appeared in public standing upright, supported on one side by an aide or by one of his sons. For major speaking occasions, an especially solid lectern was placed on the stage so that he could support himself on it. As a result, in films of his speeches, Roosevelt can be observed using his head to make gestures because his hands were gripping the lectern. I never noticed that before, and I went back and looked at some news footage, and sure enough, his hands are gripping that lectern so that he can stand. Journalist John Gunther reported that in the 1930s, he often met people in Europe, including leaders who were unaware of Roosevelt's paralysis, 
David Brinkley, who was a young White House reporter in World War II, stated that the so Secret Service actively interfered with photographers who tried to take pictures of Roosevelt in a wheelchair or being moved about by others. The Secret Service commonly destroyed photographs they caught being taken in this manner. However, they were a few exceptions. He didn't want pictures of him in a wheelchair where the people will think that he's weak. The people will think that he can't be president. He can't lead us, especially during a time of war. You say, well, that's the world. That's not us as Christians by any means. The Corinthian church had a problem with the Apostle Paul. Uh, they rejected his, not all of them, but some of them rejected his authority as an apostle. And among their criticisms of Paul, it says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19. For they say his letters are weighty and strong. These letters that he sends, which are the scriptures. Boy, the letters he sends are, boy, they're powerful. But his bodily presence is weak. And his speech is contemptible. Paul. Who's going to follow him? Oh, he writes pretty amazing stuff, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech is contemptible. According to church history, uh, Paul spoke with a severe lisp. Not only was he a person with a severe lisp, but basically he was crippled. Doesn't surprise us when we read in the scriptures about all the beatings that he took, the shipwrecks, the, all that he went through physically, uh, all the bones that were broken. Remember, he was also stoned. Uh, his legs must have been a mess, his hips, uh, just from the, the beatings. And then you think of the arthritis that would have set in and all the other contending problems. So he was a cripple, spoke with a list. And church history tells us, and we also know from the scriptures, that he was almost blind as a result of the blinding light on uh, the road to Damascus. He talks about the way you can identify his letters is by the big letters that he signs his letters with. One might think that's not the kind of person that God would use. That's not what we picture as a person that is going to be used of God. I publicly want to express my appreciation to you as a congregation this morning for the simple fact that you let me continue to preach though I'm getting feeble. I can't stand for 45 minutes. I have to sit on a chair. I have to walk with a cane and my walking is getting worse. And I know that there are many congregations in which that would not fly. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you that that has not been the determining factor of when I am to retire. But once again, and far more importantly, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? 
How is Jesus pictured when it comes to size? Remember, Saul is head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Jerusalem. What did Jesus look like? Again, the scriptures? He had no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So, give me the next picture. Recently, there was a TV series entitled The Chosen. The Chosen is a 2017 television drama based on the life of Jesus Christ, created, directed, and co-written by American filmmaker Dallas Jenkins. It is the first multi-season series about the life of Christ, and season one was the highest crowd-funded TV series or film project of all time. Here is a picture of Jesus walking with his disciples. Guess which one is Jesus? What do you notice about Jesus? A little taller than everybody else? Isn't that what leaders look like? Especially someone like Jesus. Let's give us the next picture. I think, I'm not absolutely certain, but I think that's supposed to be Peter. So Peter's pretty tall, but not as tall as Jesus. And you say, okay, again, that, that's the secular point of view. That, that's the world looking at Jesus. What about the Sunday school materials? Back to that. Woodlands Church has produced a series of material that has contributed to the Gospel Project. Very familiar, uh, very uh, important uh, work of, of uh, disseminating the Gospel and the truth of God's Word. Let's look at that. Next slide, please. Guess which one is Jesus? Look at him. Look at all the heads raised up to look at Jesus, the eyes up. Look how much taller he is than everybody else in that picture. What else do you notice about Jesus in that picture? Look at to the guy. I don't know what color that is. I'm terrible with colors. That salmon color in the back. Look at that pudgy guy. Look how trim and fit Jesus is. Look how more handsome Jesus is. Look how taller Jesus is. Okay, you can take those down. The point is the Messiah did not look like we expected Jesus to look. That's what we expected Jesus to look like. He didn't. He didn't. It is so ingrained in us that that's how leaders look, that we project it even upon Jesus, even though the word of God tells us to the contrary. Even though historically we know that great leaders have not always been handsome and tall. Subconsciously, we want Jesus to look like the kind of person that we admire and look up to. And here's the frightening thing. In fact, we even think that we're honoring him by doing so. It's only fitting. It's only honoring to Jesus to make him more handsome than anyone else. We exalt Jesus. We lift him up by making him taller than anyone else. So what does that say about a person that is homely or a person that is of average looks? or average height, 
or is small. We have a term that is used in putting people down. We say that we belittle them. Think about that term, belittle them, meaning we make them small. For to be small is unimportant. To be small is to be weak. To be small is not to be a leader. And to be small is not to be admired. And so when we read in the scriptures that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart, don't just gloss over that. But rather, let us stop and think about the kind of leaders that we admire, the kind of people that we look up to, and what are the characteristics that we appreciate? Is it their wealth? Is it their size? Is it their brazenness? And on and on and on. So our conclusion this morning is this. First, what are the qualities that we desire in our leaders? They were delighted to get a Saul who was wealthy, who was handsome, and he was tall. That checked off the most important things in their understanding of what a good king was going to be. What's important to us? What are the characteristics? What are the attributes that we want in our leaders, and especially our spiritual leaders? What qualities do you think a person needs to possess to be used of God? What must a person be looking like in order to be used of God or to be blessed by God? What qualities do you admire in others? What attracts you to a person? When I say this is foundational and why this relates to all of the gospel and all of God's word and all of life, let me make some applications about other areas of life. In 1 Peter chapter 3, concerning wives, it says this, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, precious. In God's sight, what is beautiful is that inner beauty, that integrity, that character. What's beautiful to us what attracts us to other people? Guys, what's most important to you when you think about who you're going to marry? Girls, what's most important to you when you think about the husband you're going to choose? For many, even Christians, it's more important how they look than whether or not they're even a child of God. We have to be very, very careful who we're drawn to. What qualities 
are you seeking to develop in your own life? As, as you look at yourself, in order to have self-worth, to have a good self-esteem, as it were, how important to you is your outward appearance? How much value do you place on yourself based on how you look? Your stature, your size, your beauty, your handsomeness. And how much of it is based upon your character? Who you are, how you conduct yourself. How we view Jesus even affects our understanding of the gospel. Like the expectations that the Israelites had for their king, they wanted a king that would be like every other, that would go out and fight their battles for them, make them prosperous, make them wealthy. There is a gospel out there that's called the health and wealth gospel. And the implication is, come to Jesus, and he will prosper you. Come to Jesus, and you'll be well cared for. Come to Jesus, and you'll be healthy. You'll never be sick. Along with that comes a name it, claim it theology. If you want it, just ask for it in faith, and God will give it to you, for he will give you the desires of your heart. You want that airplane? Pray for it. He'll give it to you. Just have faith. Or is the gospel, come to Jesus, who will forgive you of your sins and invite you to take up your cross and follow him? Well, what a different picture, isn't it? Take up your cross and follow him. Who in the world is going to be attracted to a message like that? Last week, I talked about how the church is getting more and more into marketing. More and more to trying to find out what's going to appeal to, to individuals. It's not a message that says, take up your cross and follow me. It's a message that says, believe in Jesus and you can have anything you want. You can be rich. But look at Jesus. Poor. Humble. Dying on a cross who says, take up your cross and follow me. We live in a period of time in which Christians are not called on to sacrifice, to give up anything. But rather, as we looked at last week, stand up for themselves, do their own thing, go their own way, and be like the people of the world. So 1 Samuel 9, 1 and 2 is crucial going forward as we think about the kingdom and the disparity of the kings that will come and the experiences that Israel will have. In future weeks, we'll see what comes of the man's man, of Saul. We'll see the kind of leader that he is. We'll see what 
Israel thinks of their king. But understand that this is a pivotal time in the nation of Israel. From this time forward, things look very different for the nation. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Lord, give us the discipline not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We often use the verse that says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. Give us the discipline when we read the scriptures to really read the scriptures. Lord, help us to, to see that the very best of Sunday school materials have this tendency to misrepresent who Jesus really is. And so it distorts our view. It distorts our view of leaders. It distorts our own view of ourselves. That's what is important and what's important to you. So, Lord, cleanse us this morning of all the negativity that exists in the world around us, all of the misconceptions concerning Jesus and concerning the gospel. And, Lord, may we not put confidence in ourselves, in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own stamina. May we learn the great truths of Scripture that repeated time and time again, even the youths will faint and be weary, and the young men will utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Lord, in our discouragement, in our great need, may we not try to bolster our strength, but rather may we cry out in our weakness that we need you. Lord, may we never relish our self-sufficiency. And if we are tall this morning, and if we are handsome this morning, and if we are bright this morning, may we never rely upon our strength in our beauty, in our wisdom. But may we understand that no one is your counselor. No one is as great as you are. No matter what physical and natural abilities that we have, none of them are sufficient to do your work and will. We all stand in need of you. Humble us. May we understand our weakness. And may we delight in those who you have chosen to use despite their limitations. A Moses who said, I can't go. I'm slow of tongue. Lord, I thank you that you use the weak, the needy, us. And oh Lord, help us this morning to rejoice that we are your children. And that is the greatest sense of worth that we could ever possess. That you died for us and we'll be in your presence. Lord, help us to hold our head high. No matter how we look this morning, no matter what our physical condition is, we are your children. We are blessed. And we are guarded and watched over 
by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.